What's going on, people? Welcome to week nine of But I Digress. Uh, After having a week off, just to, you know, take a week off and kind of relax, we are back with episode nine, and we've got some pretty interesting things to talk about. Uh, The first thing we're going to talk about is ESPN 8, the Ocho, and we'll get into what that actually is. Uh, Some things that Fox reporter Tucker Carlson said, a new slap lawsuit, that's slap with two Ps, and the NCAA messing up yet again with what is being dubbed as the Rich Paul rule. Uh, But as always, before we get started, let's start with Today in History. On this day in 1876, we had Thomas Edison patent the mimeograph, which was the first in a line of many iterations of the photocopier. And the mimeograph is really what set us on the way to what we now have as the modern-day photocopier. In 1899, we had the first household refrigerating machine uh, patented. And as those of us who live in first worlds know, refrigerators are vitally important to our everyday life. And it was on this day in 1899 that the first household version of a refrigerator was patented. In 1974, we had Richard Nixon resign from his presidency due to the Watergate scandal. A major day in history, and a lot of people don't know that it actually occurred on today, August 8th, and that happened in 1974. In 1988, we had the first scheduled night game at Wrigley Field, which is the home of the Chicago Cubs and Major League Baseball. Uh, The reason why I said first scheduled game is because it was rained out and didn't reach Major League Baseball's five-inning minimum to be counted as a game. So it is to this day known as a scheduled game. And the first official night game was actually held the next night on August 9th uh, because that game actually went the full nine innings and is official in the books. Uh, That was a big deal because the Cubs were the last team to have night games. And now in sports, it's very common for teams to have night games and primetime games, uh, mostly for television watching, but also for accessibility for people to actually attend the game. And the Cubs finally adopted that in the second oldest stadium in baseball. And also in 1988, on that exact same day, we had NWA's album Straight Outta Compton released, which was huge in the push to really recognize what was happening to black people in terms of policing and their neighborhoods and gentrification and things like that. And NWA was a major, major outcry for African-Americans in the inner cities where they could really all come together on something. And and it was listening to this music, which music has a huge history in the African-American community, dating back to the roots in Africa and how major music has been in those cultures. And so it was really nice to have NWA come out with this. It was a really controversial album when it was released. Uh, It's still a controversial album to this day. We had a movie come out called Straight Out of Compton that kind of chronicled uh, NWA and around that same time and there was a lot of controversy surrounding that movie as well but it was huge 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 for black people especially in music to be able to be outspoken about the oppression that they were experiencing moving on completely uh, we're going to get into ESPN 8 the Ocho many of us have seen the movie Dodgeball uh, with Vince Vaughn and Ben Stiller. Uh, I'm a huge fan. It's one of those movies, and I think we all have these movies where whenever they're on TV, no matter what we do, we end up watching them. Um, And so I don't know how many times I've seen that movie because it comes on TV all the time. But basically, if you haven't seen it, Vince Vaughn's character owns a gym. Ben Stiller's character owns a gym. Vince Vaughn's gym is run down and kind of a single store, whereas Ben Stiller's gym is a huge like worldwide conglomerate type thing, and they have a rivalry, blah, 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 blah. Vince Vaughn's 
group needs to they need to make a ton of money to save the gym because he hasn't been filing his taxes properly, which okay happens with businesses. And they decide to enter a dodgeball per- tournament at the urging of one of his close friends and gym members. And so you go through the whole thing. They're going through the dodgeball tournament because Ben Stiller doesn't want them to win because he wants to buy the gym. They then. His gym also enters. It becomes a whole thing. It's a funny movie. If you haven't seen it, definitely watch it. But one of the things that came with that movie is this concept of ESPN 8, the Ocho. So for those of you who are unfamiliar, ESPN, the sports television network, has multiple networks. ESPN, ESPN2, ESPN Classic, ESPNU, which is mostly for college-related sports. Uh, ESPN News, which is supposedly, which at the time was just news-related things, and now you'll sometimes find games and things on it. And then you have watch espn which was known as espn3 which was their online streaming service and now you have espn plus which is a paid online streaming service basically espn is everywhere but the joke with dodgeball was that it was televised on espn8 the ocho which is what they called it on the show and it became this huge thing and espn really embraced it and so i believe it was a few years ago started having uh, espn8 the ocho day where one of their networks would exclusively televise lesser known and not really watched quote-unquote sports and so this is one day a year for those of us who watch sports for those of us who are interested in competition in general to really embrace some lesser known sports and so that day was yesterday i'm really confused as to why they did it on august 7th when it's espn 8 the ocho and the next day was august 8th but that has nothing to do with me so yesterday was ocho day and it was really really awesome um they actually started it with at midnight they aired the movie dodgeball and then at 10 o'clock p.m yesterday they aired the movie dodgeball to kind of bookend the 24 hours of espn 2 which is the actual channel being espn 8 the ocho for the day and so some of the events that were aired and this isn't all of them these are just some of them and then we'll get into a little bit of the ones that i actually watched i tried to watch a number of them and then they were not as interesting as i thought based on the description um but we'll get into a large number of what was aired so you had the spikeball college championship and for people who are on the younger side uh spikeball is a newer game kind of like volleyball that's played on a beach on a little round net if you haven't seen it or played it it's pretty fun also very difficult uh they had three separate video game competitions uh they had big buck the arcade shooting game the tetris world championship and golden tee the very old golf arcade game Uh, we also had lumberjacking axe throwing and the highland games axe throwing is something that's growing as a pastime for people and much like cornhole is now something where you have leagues that are regularly aired on espn cornhole was actually aired as well Um, but axe throwing and cornhole are things that you can find on espn on those random sundays during the non-football season when nothing's really happening we had stone skipping which I didn't know people did competitively. Pro arm wrestling, which I've seen, but it's very interesting. Uh, I think by far the most unique one, cherry pit spitting. So there are lots of us who have spit cherry seeds or watermelon seeds or what have you, but this is now a competitive thing that is televised. Uh, They had people racing school buses and lawnmowers and trolleys, which is interesting. They had a competition where, in pairs, uh, electricians competed to solve uh, electrical issues both accurately and with speed, which was very interesting. Um, And then it wrapped up with, before the last airing of Dodgeball, 
the movie, uh, the U.S. and Canada World Cup of Dodgeball Championship match. It was the USA versus Canada. I have yet to watch it. It's sitting on my DVR. I'll watch it at some point in the next couple of days. The one that I am the most excited to talk about is the sport of dodge juggling. So they had competitive juggling, which I didn't mention, which was really interesting because they had um, people juggling... Uh, what we call pens, I forget what were they actually used, uh, but they kind of they're the juggling uh, tools that you use that look like bowling pins. And they had like five pins and then seven pins. And then they also had people juggling balls and et cetera, et cetera. It was like freestyle competitions where you did tricks and stuff. It was actually really, really impressive. But dodge juggling was interesting for two reasons. Number one, the initial concept was interesting. So there was two forms of dodge juggling. There was single dodge juggling, dodge juggling. And team dodge juggling. In the single one, you had one dodgeballer, and these were people who were on their national dodgeball team. So as I said, the U.S. and Canada playing the World Cup match. We're talking people who are playing on their national teams for dodgeball. So you had one dodgeballer and five jugglers. And what the dodgeballer had to do was they had 60 seconds to eliminate all of the jugglers. Here's the trick, though. You don't eliminate the jugglers by hitting them which happen often, you you eliminate the jugglers by knocking one of their pins to the ground. So each juggler is juggling three pins, and they are eliminated once one of their pins hit the ground, and they have to be juggling at all time, which means while sometimes they might not be actively juggling because they're holding two of the pins, one of the pins has to be in the air at all times. So... In theory, you would go, oh, wow, this is really easy. The dodgeballer is just going to knock the jugglers over. He's going to hit them. He's going to distract them. They're going to drop the pins. What ended up happening is we had three dodgeballers each get three attempts to eliminate all of the jugglers. Keep in mind, the one rule of this, well, there were a couple of rules, but the two major rules were, A, the dodgeballer couldn't cross the center line, basic dodgeball rule. B, they are not allowed to hit the jugglers in the head. And they, like, said at the beginning, if they, like, throw it at the body and the juggler ducks and hits him in the head, that's different. But, like, anything that's, like, above their head and they had instant replay and everything. So you can't hit him in the head, right? So what ended up happening is in the nine attempts, the dodgeballers were only able to eliminate jugglers three times. And it was crazy because what these jugglers were doing is while they were focusing on their actual juggling, they were using the peripheral vision to watch the dodgeballer. And when the ball was thrown at them, they would throw one of their pins in the air really, really high, knock the dodgeball away with the pin or absorb the contact. And then by the time the next the time the pin they had thrown was falling, they had time to get under it and begin their juggling pattern again. So the jugglers actually won in a competition where you had people juggling and people chucking balls at them. And these are not the new school styrofoam balls. These are the old school rubber kickball dodgeballs that these guys are throwing. And a lot of these guys were clocked at throwing anywhere between 70 and 85 miles an hour. And they're not throwing a baseball. They're throwing a red dodgeball. And jugglers are getting hit. They're knocking them away. They're kicking them away. It was amazing to see the jugglers actually win this competition where a layperson would go, yeah, there's no way, no way that a juggler or a group of jugglers rather is going to win. So that was interesting. The team dodge juggling was less interesting, but I watched it because I was already in the vein of watching it. And what it was, was you had five, you had teams of six, one juggler and five 
dodgeballers. And what it looked like was this was in a convention space where you could show up with a team and they would assign you a juggler so you didn't have to find a juggler. And these were the same jugglers who were doing the dodge juggling, the same jugglers who were doing the juggling competition. Um, so you had a team. There was literally one team that was called Four Kids and a Fat Guy, and it was four children and, like, one large man was their team. And so what the goal was was you could hit people as much as you wanted, but the jugglers in this competition had five pins, and you had to knock one of the pins to the ground. So the general strategy was three people throwing and two people defending, trying to knock the balls down. Most times people tried to throw the ball over the people defending, have it bounce off the wall and knock a pin out. It was interesting. Uh, Either way, dodge juggling, super, super awesome. And with the streaming services being the way that people are receiving their television now, there's no reason that ESPN, I think personally, shouldn't invest in having some form of the Ocho. They already have a paid streaming service where people pay five bucks a month. You could include it in that. Maybe for an extra dollar a month, you get access to ESPN 8, the Ocho. But I know I was a kid. All I wanted to do was watch competition. I watched the World's Strongest Man. I watched the Lumberjack competitions because they were it's competition. It's interesting. And in the summer, when the only sport that you really have happening is baseball and you're a sports junkie, you're kind of just itching for anything. So I think ESPN find a way to make the Ocho permanent. Otherwise, really, really awesome that you gave it to us for what is just one day. Next topic, we're going to take a hard, hard left turn um, and talk about Tucker Carlson. So before I get into this, uh, what I've tried to do with this podcast is stay as apolitical as possible. Um, as this is my first venture into media of any kind, I was trying to do my best not to really alienate any particular audience. And so I've tried to keep my own political opinions Uh, as much out of the news stories as possible with that little part at the end where I give an opinion. That's why I have the warning on there. Like, wait, there's more. It's a screamer like it that for that for that part, that is whatever I want to say and how I'm feeling. But for the actual news topics, I've tried to stay as newsy as possible and as apolitical as possible. However, there are some news stories that happen that are important enough that you can't avoid them. And, while at some points in this next topic, I might be a little bit opinionated, I'm going to do my best to stay with the facts. Um, but for this is one of those topics where it's just really hard to avoid having any opinion whatsoever. So for those of you who don't know, Tucker, Tucker Carlson is a talk show host on Fox. Uh, he hosts a nightly political talk show. And for those of you who are not aware, Fox is, I don't believe news stations take official affiliations when it comes to party lines, um, but based on the rhetoric and the the talk show hosts and the top and the topics on Fox, uh, Fox is widely considered to be a politically Republican news station. So we will preface it with that uh, before people are like, oh my God, why is he on the air? Why is he allowed to say this? Fox is at least viewed by the public as a Republican-leaning news station. Uh, and so we had Tucker Carlson say some really, really controversial things, um, some things that, quite frankly, I'm, I personally believe, and opinion alert, uh, I personally believe that these things are absolutely ludicrous and false, but uh, he's, he's allowed to have his opinion, um, and I'm going to allow him to have his opinion, not that it's my job or my responsibility to say that somebody can or can't have an opinion. Uh, But I think it is important sometimes to point out people's opinions and see that 
People's opinions, while they're often just that, opinions, people sometimes state them as if they are facts and state them in spaces in which they are taken as facts and not viewed as the opinion of a particular person. And so I think it's important at those times to point those opinions out. And also, while they are opinions and people say they can't be false, opinions actually can be false. If your opinion disagrees with things that have been proven to be absolute fact— then while it is your opinion and you are entitled to it, I can still say that your opinion is false. If you want to say that LeBron James is a better basketball player than Michael Jordan, that's your opinion. If you want to say LeBron James is a better basketball player than Michael Jordan because he's won more championships, I can go, no, that's false. Michael Jordan has won six to LeBron's three. So your reasoning for your opinion or how you present your opinion could actually be false depending on what you say and how you say it. So keep that in mind when we're giving opinions. Uh, So what he said was he was talking about white supremacy and with the two mass shootings that we had in the same day uh, and then the recent history of mass shootings this year and in the last 20 or so years, uh, lots of people have said a lot of things about mass shootings, why they're happening. People have pointed to video games. People have pointed to the Internet. People And, like, there are arguments on both sides for everything. Um, But one of the rhetorics that has come, and this is not as something that people are just saying. This is based on the reading material that has been left to us by the people committing the shootings. White supremacy is something that has been talked about more so than it had been in mainstream media for quite some time. Lots of minorities have been talking about this consistently since the days of the actual KKK, where it was clear and they were lynching and burning crosses and we could all see it. And you had people being convicted by juries of not their peers and so on and so forth. Uh, But in the mainstream media, it had stopped being talked about while minorities continue to have that conversation. And because of the rhetoric of the White House office in the past few years and the rhetoric of the people committing the killings, whether it's Facebook manifestos, videos, pictures, groups that they were members of on social media, what have you, this is a conversation that has come back. And Carlson said some things that... It's you just sometimes look at people and go, how did you get there? Like, I totally respect your opinion, but like, let me know how you got there. So he referred to white supremacy as, quote, a hoax. Uh, He also compared it to the, quote, Russia hoax, uh, which we're not going to get into today. Uh, He also said, quote, it he also said it is, quote, a conspiracy theory used to divide the country and keep power. Uh, We're just going to do a couple more quotes before we actually get into it. Quote, the whole thing is a lie. And quote, it's actually not a real problem. The combined membership of every white supremacist organization in this country would be able to fit inside a college football stadium. So a lot of stuff to unpack here. Not going to completely unpack it because it would absolutely get too opinionated. And that's not the goal. But the goal is to have a conversation And so the first thing I want to start with is we're not going to look at the it's a hoax thing because we've seen the KKK and what they say and what their, for lack of a better word, their like pillars are. And we just had a KKK rally, I believe it was two years ago in Charleston, Virginia. Uh, Check my facts on that, guys, but I'm pretty sure it was two years ago. And you can watch the videos and listen to what the people are saying And if that's not white supremacist rhetoric, I don't know what is. Uh, But what I think is interesting, the first quote that I found very interesting was that he said it's, quote, a conspiracy theory used to divide the country and keep power. My question to him would be, who's trying to keep power? 
most of the people complaining about white supremacy outside of the quote-unquote woke white people are minorities who are minorities because they don't have power. So in what world is me, an African-American male, complaining, not even complaining, but just like mentioning white supremacy and how it's a problem, keeping power? What power is it that I'm trying to keep? Oftentimes when you have people who are saying things that they may believe and not understand, they say things like, oh, yeah, they're just trying to keep power. And it's like, who's trying to keep power? None of us who are, quote unquote, complaining, for lack of a better term, actually have any power to keep. That's the whole point of us arguing with it. Uh, So that was something that was interesting. I also thought it was interesting that he said the whole thing was a lie and followed it up with it's uh, the combined membership of white supremacist organization in this country. We able to fit inside a college football stadium. It can't be both. You can't say that there's not that many people in it. And the whole thing is a lie. Uh, If you're going to say it's a lie, then if it's a lie, that means it's not real. If there are people who are members who can fit in a college football stadium, then it is real and by definition is not a lie. And so that's something that I think is really interesting uh, coming from him because it can't you can't have it both ways. It can't be both a lie and also not that many people do it. The last thing I want to talk about on this topic is not as much about this topic specifically, but more of a general understanding. So he tried to use the fact of saying not a lot of people are members of these organizations as a way to justify saying that it does not exist. What I need people to stop doing is assuming that for me to hold a particular opinion, for me to feel a particular way, I need to express that by group membership. This is something that you can show with lots of things. You can show it with movies, with television. Uh, A general attitude is not something that is easily quantifiable. Uh, You can have a group of people who largely agree on something, and those people may not have the correct outlets by which to express that agreement. And so it looks like not a lot of people agree, even though the the general attitude is that they all agree on this one thing. Uh, A good example could be if you try to use baseball attendance to dictate fandom, right? So you might have a team where, like the Oakland A's, where their stadium is not that easy to get to. It's in a football stadium, uh, and they don't have great attendance numbers. And so people might say, well, look at the A's attendance. Obviously, they don't have that many fans. But if you were to poll people in Oakland, in the Bay Area, in California, and maybe even across the country, you could see that... If you ask people if they were A's fans and if they rooted for the Oakland Athletics, that there would be more people who root for the team than who actually regularly attend the games. There are oftentimes that you have people, and this is just to go on the sports analogy, who are fans of teams who have never been to a game and die never going to a game of the team that they love. This does not mean that they are not a fan. That just means that they are not captured in that one particular statistic that people sometimes use to illustrate fandoms. In the same way... Somebody being a white supremacist is not exclusive to them being a part of a white supremacist organization. Maybe they're in a position 
politically or professionally where they don't feel as though they can be a member of this organization and keep the lifestyle that they love. Maybe they're in a place geographically where they don't have access to a group like this, or they don't think they have access to a white supremacist group, even though they hold those viewpoints. Not being a member does not mean that the attitude does not exist. And so I need us to stop generalizing these ideas, whether it be white supremacy, whether it be sports fandom, whether pretty much anything, if it has to do with a general attitude or a general mindset, stop, stop, stop generalizing to the very easily quantifiable numbers. If you want to know what's actually happening, especially when it comes to social group membership and ask anybody who has studied sociology and they will talk, they will tell you about this. Social group membership is one of the hardest things to quantify in the realm of psychology and sociology because it is so easy to A, deny it, and B, be a member of that social group without, quote, being a member of that social group. In the sense that I can share all of the exact same ideals as this entire social group, however, I may not ever interact with them. And so if somebody were doing some sort of a census in that social group, they would not count me as a member, even though I am actually a member, simply because I'm not interacting with them. When we have things like the internet that can create such intricate webs of interconnectivity, we have to understand that a person who is constantly seeking out particular rhetoric about a particular group of people is a member of that social group. Now, if they're seeking it out because they're doing some sort of research or something, or they're seeking it out because, like, whatever their reason is, then maybe they're not. And that's, again, what makes it hard to quantify, because somebody who is seeking out information isn't necessarily a member. However, there are lots of people who all they do is seek this information out and continually read it and internalize it, and they don't necessarily do overt things that the group supports and or does, but that does not mean they are not a member of this group. So just simply being a quantifiable member of a group or a social movement or not being a quantifiable member of a group or a social movement does not mean that you agree or disagree with that. So using that as a way to say it does not exist a, doesn't make any sense because you're saying there's not enough people to fill a college football stadium, therefore it doesn't exist, which your better argument would be it's not a real problem because not that many people feel that way, but that's neither here nor there. Um, it's not something that you can argue with. To say it's a hoax, no. Now, if you're one of those people who want to say it used to be that way and it's no longer that way, while I disagree with you, I will give you a lot more credence than somebody who says it never exists. Um but we need to consider that lots of people can be a part of these groups without being one of the quantifiable members that are used to count them. After the break, we are going to, again, take a hard left turn, get out of this political muckety-muck, and try to talk about some things that are more interesting. Our third topic of today, we're going to talk about these new lawsuits called SLAP lawsuits and what SLAP stands for, Strategic Lawsuit Against Public Participation. What this boils down to is we have people who are being sued for their online reviews. 
Yes, you heard me right. Online reviews are now something that companies are suing people for. So those of us who participate in online shopping or online research before we spend money somewhere are very familiar with reading Google reviews, Yelp reviews, Amazon reviews, eBay buyers, seller reviews, etc. And we often use these reviews to monitor and or determine our spending habits. So if I'm looking at a new restaurant that I've never attended and it's got a four and a half star review on Yelp and people have all these great stories about it, I might go, oh, that's a little expensive, but it seems like it's a really great time. Contrarily, there might be something that I think is a really awesome idea and then I go on there and I go to Google or I go to Yelp and all of the reviews are terrible and I go, oh, maybe I actually shouldn't do this. And so what companies are doing now is they are actually suing people for the reviews that they leave online. It's really, really fascinating. And it's not even that they're suing people because these lawsuits have a lot of credence in terms of things like libel. But what they're doing is using their financial power to bully people into taking the review down uh, is generally how they end. But occasionally there will be damages that have to be paid by the individual reviewer, etc. And so as is what happens with a lot of large companies when people try to take them on legally is that your average human being does not possess the financial means to properly take on these giant companies. Now, sometimes you get lucky and you have a really, really good case and you can get some pro bono work from a lawyer or from a law firm. But more often than not, when these companies sue you, people aren't going to take the case because it's theoretically small. But for the company, for them to have their lawyers who are already on payroll that they're already paying take you on doesn't cost them any extra money. And so we've had states now have to adopt anti-slap statutes in order to protect the freedom of speech of reviewers. It's really fascinating. And so this is actually taken off where 28 states and in addition to the 28 states, Washington, D.C. and the U.S. territory of Guam have adapted these anti-slap statutes, statutes to help people who post negative reviews online and then are being attacked and sued by these large corporations. Uh, there was actually one case where a Florida man, go figure, it was a Florida man. Uh, if you're not familiar with the Chronicles of Florida Man, just Google it. Uh, that's slight side note. You have a bunch of really funny headlines that start with Florida man does X, Y, and Z. And uh, they're actually really, really funny. Uh, but moving on, you had a man in Florida who took his dog to a vet where the dog was dying. Uh, the surgeon in that particular vet's office was on vacation. Uh, he sat for multiple hours trying to get a surgeon before they told him there was nothing they could do. And his dog died. He then posted a scathing review on a review site. And was taken to court by this veterinary office who was part of a larger corporation and incurred $26,000 in legal fees. Uh, he ended up deciding to just take the review down and the company didn't ask for any money from him. However, he still has $26,000 in legal fees due to the slap lawsuit that was filed against him. And so it raises an interesting thing because the ability to review is not something new. People often go to new restaurants based on word of mouth, based on res uh, not reservations, I'm sorry, based on reviews given to them in person by their friends and family members or coworkers or what have you. That's generally how people find new things. The Internet has actually made it so that 
companies and restaurants and businesses are able to more rapidly expand the word of mouth by using the review system. So it's actually really smart and good for them to have it. However, it has now become dangerous for people uh, to leave negative reviews, uh, which is not good for us as human beings, because if somebody had a negative experience, we want to know because we want to make sure that we do not go to that place. Uh, or at least if we're going to that place, we have the right expectations in mind so we can handle the situation properly. So what this particular USA article did, USA Today article did, was give advice for leaving negative reviews. And we're going to talk about it because I absolutely agree with it. So the first advice that they gave was wait a few days. If you had a negative experience, wait a few days before you leave your review. And this is absolutely true. Most people who have a negative experience are very emotional about it. The first person they tell may or may not get yelled at is like a third party venting scenario. And so absolutely, if you have a negative experience, do not not sorry for the double negative, but do not not leave the review. Absolutely leave the negative review, but wait a few days so you're not nearly as emotional when you leave said review. The second piece of advice I give is stick to the facts. We as people have a, and this kind of goes back to the waiting a few days, we have a tendency to become emotional about things and then exaggerate what happened. So while the experience may have been bad, it may not have necessarily been terrible. But the way that we talk about it makes it seem like the worst experience we've ever had. You often see reviews where it's, people say, worst experience I've ever had at a restaurant. And if you actually talk to that person, they could describe three, four, five, six, seven multiple experiences that are worse than that particular experience. But in that moment, they are emotional. And so their answer is worst experience I've ever had in a restaurant. So stick to the facts. Uh, it said avoid using really colorful language to describe things. Avoid opinionated language. Um, so if you say the waiter looked really unwelcoming, that's your opinion. That could be their face. That could be their posture. They could have a medical condition. There's a million different reasons like that a waiter or a waitress or a customer service person may have a particular posture. Maybe they just got done holding something and their arm hurts. You, who knows? The point is, anything that can be considered opinion, you want to stay away from. Give them the facts. The service was slow. It took five minutes for me to get my drinks, when at most restaurants it takes two minutes. It took 30 minutes for me to get my check, when at most restaurants it takes seven minutes. Whatever it is, give the opinions. There were... 15 people in line in front of me and each one of them only took two minutes after when they were next in line and it took me eight minutes whatever the facts are use the facts and the last one is use really good judgment like and this is difficult for people often but use good judgment understand that saying i had terrible service from this particular waiter does not mean this is the worst restaurant in the city of chicago Sometimes restaurants have bad days, servers have bad days, restaurants have bad servers. I, I can count the number of people, and I've worked in the restaurant industry for eight years now, where it was their first shift and they were absolutely terrible. And we all knew they were terrible and we did what we could to help them, but we felt really bad for the people who got them because they were absolutely terrible. There are people who get their first restaurant job and are not cut out to be in the restaurant industry. And it takes them a couple months to figure it out. If you're one of the people who was unfortunate enough to have them as a server, sorry for you, but that doesn't mean that all of the servers in that restaurant are terrible. That means that you got a bad server. If the food was really bad, 
and it's the first and only time you've been to that restaurant, I would say give it one more shot. Now, if you got sick or something and you don't want to do it, that's fine. But if you didn't like how that particular dish was cooked, consider ordering a completely different dish. Maybe you don't like how they cook that dish. Maybe you got a dish that they are not known for and it's not something they spend as much time on. If you get the pasta at the steakhouse and you think the pasta is mediocre, that's because it's a steakhouse. Now, if you get the steak at the steakhouse and it's mediocre, that's a completely different story. But use your judgment. Understand the situation. Understand where you are. And if you don't, if you're not sure, ask someone who knows. I was recently at a family gathering, and I was talking to a family friend of ours, and we were laughing because he was talking about one of my cousins. And he was like, when it comes to restaurants and customer service and all that stuff, I defer to your cousin Reese because he knows what he's talking about. When it comes to law and like fair treatment and things like that, people should refer to me because I'm a lawyer. Makes sense. This family friend in particular is smart enough to go, hey, I don't know everything about this topic. I may think that this is this and it's actually not this. And so there have been many a time where I've been out with friends, family members, whatever, and they're like, man, the service is terrible. Our server is awful. And as someone who works in a restaurant and has worked in restaurants, I can look at them and go, actually, our server is really, really good. What people haven't noticed is when we sat down, that table next to us sat down, that table over there sat down, and our server had to take all three of those tables at the same time, which meant they couldn't pace them properly, and they also have this table, this table, and this table. So they have six tables, which you're not really supposed to have, which means somebody's not here, somebody's in a party, but basically the restaurant isn't functioning the way it's supposed to. And so the fact that our server is being is able to show us any attention is incredibly impressive. And the response is often, oh, I didn't notice that. And it's like, well, yeah, you didn't work in a restaurant. Nobody expects you to notice those kind of things. But understand that before you leave a negative review, if you're not somebody who has a lot of knowledge on how that particular sector of business usually works, ask a friend of yours who does before you talk about how terrible things were. The last thing we're going to talk about is this new NCAA rule. So on a previous episode, I talked about the NCAA needing to pay athletes and needing to figure out a way to pay athletes because their athletes are worth so much money to them and so on and so forth, which is not what today's topic of conversation is about. It's about the NCAA failing athletes yet again. And this isn't as much of them failing just the athletes as it is them just kind of failing as a general organization, which those of us who follow NCAA athletics very closely, this is not an unfamiliar topic. Uh, the NCAA fails often. This is just they have now found new and interesting and creative ways to fail us. So there is a new recently the NCAA came out with a new rule before we get into what happened recent uh, yesterday, I believe um, they came out with a rule where previously if you were an NCAA athlete, and this mostly applies to football and basketball players, um, because amateurism is a thing for the NCAA. Once you receive money, you're no longer an amateur. You forfeit your ability to play for a college or university or what have you. And so they've been very strict on communications that athletes can have and maintain their amateur status. And so they recently came out with a new rule, and it's actually really good for the athletes. I did agree with this, that athletes can sign with agents and declare for their respective draft 
And there is a minimum deadline that the drafts, like the leagues have, that you have to declare for the draft by this date. And so what the NCAA decided is that as a player, I can sign with an agent, declare for the draft, see what my draft stock is, see where I might be taken. And if I'm not pleased with it, I can break off the contract with my agent or put it on hold or whatever the legal thing that I have to do with the agency is. But basically, I can sign an agent and then end up going back to school. The only caveat being that my agent cannot negotiate any contracts, whether it be signing me with a league or endorsements uh, for me to maintain my amateur status. And this has been huge because a lot of players in the past have come out and declared for the draft and had teams saying, oh, if you had stayed for another year, you would have been able to go this many rounds sooner, which means X amount more money and blah, 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 blah. And there was no way for players to find this out because they didn't have agents who could have these conversations because signing with an agent previously forfeited your amateur status. So the NCAA came out with this rule. It's fantastic. Players can sign with an agent, see where they're going to land. If they like it, cool. Stay with your agent, get a shoe contract, get drafted, go on about your life. If you're not really pleased about it and you want to go back to school, that's cool. Figure it out with your agent, how you guys are going to work that out. Maybe next year when you come out, you're going to still be with their agency. You might owe them X amount of money in layover fees or whatever. However, they want to figure it out but you can sign with this agent not like your draft stock go back to school be perfectly fine they came out with a new rule for agents and it's a new ncaa agent certification process and it's something that if you want to talk to these athletes because they are a part of the ncaa there are certain certifications that you have to go through this has always been a thing but they've now changed the process and there are apparently lots of new points in the process that make it more difficult for agents but the one that everybody's talking about is a certification that says that people who are agents who want to talk with NCAA athletes have to obtain have to have a bachelor's degree so if you are not holding a bachelor's degree and you are an in you are an agent, you cannot talk to NCAA athletes. Now, on the surface, this seems like something that would be really good for college athletes, where you don't have to worry about these shady people who didn't go to school, who don't know what they're doing, and blah, 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 right? Because you had athletes get screwed over, they got promised things, they didn't get those things, they gave a bunch of money to people, they didn't get the money that they were supposed to get back, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. However, the NCAA is missing two points. Number one, if I'm a college athlete, even on an unofficial capacity, in an unofficial capacity, I've probably been in contact with some form of an agent or agency from the time I was in high school because these people are incredibly highly recruited and we know who they are well before they're eligible for any professional drafts. So they've been talking to these people forever. Uh, and most of the people that they talk, they've been talking to are parts of larger agencies. And so if I'm a part of a larger agency, as an agent, I have somebody backing me. Now, if I screw over a player, which happens, we had a bunch of agents get arrested in 2017 for taking bribes they weren't supposed to take. That's something that just may happen. Also, all of those agents who got arrested in 2017 held bachelor's degrees. So holding a bachelor's degree is not something that makes you this upstanding moral person. It just means that you did this arbitrary thing that the NCAA wants to encourage people to do because they're the National Collegiate Athletic Association and blah, 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 blah. But what it really boils down to is there's the new hot agent in the streets, and he's not really new, but his name is becoming a lot more well-known, is Rich Paul. 
and Rich Paul is a personal friend of LeBron James, who LeBron James, the story is LeBron James met him outside of an airport. I believe he was selling jerseys out of the back of his car. LeBron liked the way that he talked to him. And so he set him up with all kinds of internships with people like Warren Buffett and some other financial people and some sports agencies and things of that nature. And he was able to start his own sports agency. And he is now an agent who represents LeBron James and Anthony Davis and Chris Paul and a bunch of other like really high profile athletes. Right. But by this rule, Chris Paul, who did some of the most prestigious internships you can do in his profession, does not obtain a bachelor's degree and is therefore not allowed to contract NCAA agents or sorry, NCAA athletes. And it's only a problem because it is the NCAA, again, trying to solve a problem without understanding the root of the actual problem. Whether or not someone has a bachelor's degree is not what makes them a good agent. They are a good agent if, A, they are good at negotiating, and, B, they can be trusted. And having a bachelor's degree does not mean either of those things. So yet again, we have the NCAA thinking one thing, having the right idea that they need to protect college athletes in some way, and going about it in the complete, complete wrong way. But wait, there's more. Hang on to your seat, baby, because this one's a screamer. For this week, but this week's But Wait, There's More, uh, I want to talk about one of my favorite things to talk about as a general topic of conversation, and that's the NFL. I am a diehard, unapologetic football fan. I watch college football. I watch pro football. I watched flag football when it was aired. I watched middle school football, high school football. I played football. I coached football. My life was mostly sports, but for all intents and purposes, football. Uh, there was lots of basketball and baseball thrown in there. There's also a lot of soccer, but my favorite sport to watch and consume is football. And with it being August... We football fans are very excited because it is about to the it's about to be the start of football season. We had the Hall of Fame preseason game last week, which preseason's not a big deal. But today, for most of us, uh, 22 teams in particular of the 32 teams will be playing their first preseason game today slash tonight, August 8th, 2019. So we're really excited for football. Uh, we have 11 games happening tonight, but. I'm not going to do like an NFL preview or a fantasy football thing. Although if you don't play fantasy football, I suggest you do it. It's really fun. gives you a different rooting interest. But what we're actually going to talk about is my support of the NFL and people who disagree with it and et cetera, et cetera. So let me preface this by saying if you're somebody who disagrees with the NFL as a whole and their stances on domestic violence and their stances on players kneeling, et cetera, et cetera, by all means, Great, awesome, glad you have an opinion, glad you're informed, fantastic. Do not, first of all, say that I am, by watching the NFL, I am saying that I agree with all of their stances on those things. First, you cannot say that, because that is incorrect. Second of all, understand that my support of the particular organization that I root for, which in my case is the Chicago Bears, but people root for any one or multiple of the 32 teams that the NFL shows us on television every Thursday, Sunday, and Monday. My support of the particular organization that I follow does not mean that I, A, support the NFL, and B, for 
more for most intents and purposes doesn't mean I necessarily support the opinion of that organization. I might like particular players and maybe an organization that I followed pre whoever their current leadership is. In my case, it's generational where my father followed this organization and I adopted my fandom from him and the people who, in the case of the Bears, the owners of the team have not changed. But in many cases, the owners of teams have changed or the front office people have changed. And so whether or not I root for that team has nothing to do with my opinion on the topics that they have opinions on. The last thing you need to consider is that don't, if you're one of those people who is, oh my God, I don't watch football anymore because I don't want to support the NFL, blah, 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 blah. I don't want to give them my money. I need you to understand how the system works. TV contracts are signed years and years and years in advance. And the money that TV providers use to get access to airing the games has nothing to do with the ratings that games do. Think about it. I'm going to watch the Bears game tonight. I believe that game is going to be aired on Fox, if I'm not mistaken. Fox got the right to air NFL games years ago in a TV contract that they signed years ago, which means me watching the game tonight is not putting money directly into Fox's pocket. Furthermore, the money that the corporations are using the like TV corporations are using to pay the leagues to get access to air the games is not necessarily coming from you. It comes from the advertisers who air things. And granted, they want to advertise because of the amount of people watching. That's fair. But it also comes from like subscribers. So like if you're a person who has cable and you get Fox and you pay Comcast or Spectrum or AT&T or Dish Network or whoever, a year, whatever it is that you pay them for your cable, part of that money, regardless of if you watch the NFL or not, goes towards them paying the NFL to get the rights to air the games. Now, if you're like, oh, well, I don't have cable. I have Hulu. If you are somebody who watches live TV in any capacity, whether it's YouTube TV, PlayStation View, Sling, uh, what's another one? Hulu has live sports now. Whatever it is that you're using to watch live TV, if you pay for that service and one of the channels or multiples of the channels are airing games from the NFL, then you are supporting the NFL because you are giving your money to your live television provider who is then turning around and giving the money that you gave them to the NFL so that they can air these games. So, If you want to truly protest the NFL, keep in mind that you also have to protest the NBA and you have to protest Disney and you have to protest all these other people by cutting live television completely. So you can watch Hulu, you can watch Netflix, you can watch Amazon Prime, um, you can watch like HBO and things like that. But if you subscribe to live television in any capacity, you are contributing to the NFL. So... You want to be on your high horse still and protest the NFL by not watching it? By all means, go ahead and do that. But as somebody who loves football and loves the sport of football and wants to watch it played at the highest level, I don't need to hear I don't need to hear you telling me how horrible of a person I am for supporting the NFL because you, my friend, are supporting the NFL just as much as I am because you pay for cable. The only difference is I'm not depriving myself of something that I have enjoyed my entire life, something that I share with my friends and family. It is a common interest, it is a point of conversation. 
fantasy football is something that my family does together every year. And this, I believe, is like our fifth or sixth year having a family fantasy football league. It is ways that I keep in contact with my god siblings and my sister's god siblings who we don't live with and haven't lived near for 15 years. It is ways that my little cousins got introduced to football. It is ways that we have things to talk about. We can trash talk to each other. I'm 28 and one of them is 12. And if he beats me, he can talk trash. There are very few things that he can beat me at. But this is one of them. It puts everybody on a level playing field. It is a way for us to have fun as a family. It is a way for my friends and family to get together and enjoy time spent together and have something that we can commune over. And so while the NFL has done many terrible things, that's fine. That doesn't mean that football is terrible. And yes, there are people getting concussions and there are people dying from these concussions, etc., etc. I understand all of those things. That does not mean that football is something that is inherently bad. Is it semi-dangerous? Sure. Are there people who are having their lives changed because of it? Absolutely. But if somebody is deciding to do this thing that they know is dangerous, how is somebody playing professional football any different than people who go free climbing on mountains or people who go skydiving or whitewater rafting or any of those things? How is football any different than any of that? Somebody chooses to do something. They get compensated very well for it. They are worth the money that they can compensate it, and arguably some of them worth more than they get compensated. So whatever your reason is for not wanting to watch the NFL, congratulations. You have a soapbox. You're standing on it. You're saying what you need to say. Do not condemn others for it. And also know for sure that you're not contributing it before you say that you're boycotting it. That's all I've got for this week. Thanks so much for listening. Sorry about the week off. Um, I had a week off of work and kind of wanted to just take a break from everything. But with fall kicking up and football kicking up and new stories generally pick up in the fall when kids are back in school and things, uh, there'll be a lot more to talk about. So I'll do my best not to take any weeks off. Uh, there's been great response about the first ever interview that we had. My next interview, I'm planning to interview a veteran for Veterans Day. So that'll be very, very interesting. Um, and if I find anything else that I want to talk to somebody about, that would be great. If you have something that you think I should talk about and or interview somebody about, uh, let me know. You have my social media. You can follow me on Twitter at dubr1617 or at dubr16 on Instagram. DMs are open on both. If you're a personal friend, feel free to text me, whatever. If you have feedback, let me know. Need some more reviews. Obviously, as always, subscribe, rate, review on iTunes. If you're listening on Spotify, make sure you follow. If you're listening on SoundCloud, you can comment on individual episodes. You can follow the page. All of the ways that you can follow and consume and let people know. Word of mouth. Uh, while we talked about the slap lawsuits, I'm not going to sue you for a bad review, but I'd prefer if you just gave it to me directly. But also use word of mouth. If you like the podcast, somebody else that you know may like the podcast. Much like football, it may be a way that you guys can bond. Maybe together you guys can come up with some things for me to talk about. Who knows? What? Whatever. Share the podcast. Uh, I listen to podcasts a lot. I do my best to share those with people as well. So if you have some podcasts that you think I should listen to that maybe I would find interesting or would help me with this platform, absolutely let me know. Uh, that's all I have for this week. Thanks so much for listening and later days. Mm-hmm.